a sense of an overview of what, what we're doing here and why. Sometimes I go through, it happens to me sometimes, that the stuff that's going on in the world, the news, there's just times when it just seems to hit me harder than usual kind of overwhelm me, you know, for whatever the conditions are, because there's always things happening, but the cycle sometimes of fear and hatred and violence and fear and hatred and violence and the big picture we see in the small individual picture. Sometimes I, for whatever the conditions, externally, internally, I can feel quite overwhelmed by it. I imagine maybe I'm not the only one. And so um, the last few weeks were a time like that for me. And occasionally then, when I'll be coming on a retreat uh, in one of those times, my mind will kind of the, kind of the uh, samsara questioning mind will go, how can, how can this, this commitment, this practice of steady awareness leading to wisdom, how can this possibly match and counter the force of the delusion of the hatred and fear and anger in the world? How can it possibly be, not useful, but how can that possibly be stronger? And I actually, in a way, I kind of like it when these questions come up for me, because, of course, then I take a, a deeper look. I really reaffirm in my own experience, in my own mind and heart, the power of the awakening heart and mind, the power of the wisdom, the clear seeing that arises from this practice of steady awareness. And what I like about re, not rediscovering, it didn't go away, but re-recognizing that this force of truly understanding things as they are, not just intellectually, but kinesthetically in our gut. That is the power that really transforms our own hearts and minds. I like that I keep reconnecting with that and not not just assuming, you know. Oh yeah, I discovered that a long time ago and I'm just assuming it's still alive and good. You know, there's, assuming is never the way of awakening. It's what's happening right now. Look and see. Look and see for myself. Look and see for ourselves. Is this a path? Is this a practice that's actually leading to less pain and suffering and hatred and fear and anger in your own heart and mind? Because that's the place that this practice works. One of my favorite quotations is from Mahagosananda, who was a wonderful Cambodian monk, peace activist. And um, he said once, and he was speaking at a, I think it was a conference, I read, just read this, I didn't hear it, a conference in D.C., I think, uh, against, uh, about landmines. You know, there's landmines sprinkled all over the world. and There are many in his home country of Cambodia from the time of the Khmer Rouge there. <clears throat> anyway, he was saying that all of the landmines in the world have been planted by the landmines in our own hearts. So to understand and thus remove the landmines in our hearts 
is the way to remove them in the world. To me, that's one way of saying the essence of the Buddha's teaching. Certainly what we can and do explore and come to see. This isn't about believing it intellectually. You know, you can think all kinds of things. But really to look and see what are the landmines in my heart? How are they created on a moment-to-moment basis? How are they dissolved in a moment-to-moment basis? And it's just as Mahagosananda said in that quotation, through understanding, the landmines in our hearts are dissolved. Through understanding, not through willpower, not through hating and digging them out, not through saying, okay, that's it, I'm never going to be angry again. Have you ever tried that? (laughs) Does it work? (laughs) It'd be good if it did, but it doesn't. And so this is what I want to talk about tonight, how it's, it's amazing the power of this simple, receptive, moment-to-moment awareness. It seems like so nothing, right? The way Alexis was talking about it this morning. Just notice you're seeing. It's like, what? Notice I'm seeing? Go around all day noticing I'm seeing, and this is going to liberate my heart and mind from suffering? I don't know about that. But luckily... Here you are with nothing else to do. (laughs) We make it that way on purpose, really. Because if you had anything else to do, if you don't really have a a trust built from your own experience in this, um, we'd go do the other thing. And I'm sure you've tried many things today, most of which probably weren't that interesting. (laughs) They're for a while. When you're reading the ingredients on the toilet cleaner, you know, you know. You're sinking, you know. Just notice reading. That's all you have to do. Just notice reading. Wanting. Incredible boredom. That's awareness. That's awareness. You can't get away from it. Anyway. So, but the Buddha, in his awakening, he's talking about the wisdom, the understanding that frees our hearts and minds. It may seem that um, the practice is a a turning away from all the conflicts and all the difficulties and all the pain in the world. It certainly can, it is, as we come to a, a secluded, supported, relatively safe place like this, we certainly are very privileged to be able to be here. That's not a a put-down, something we can really appreciate. But as you see, as uh, we were saying last night, and maybe I said this morning, Alexis said, all the ups and downs of life are going to happen here. We, each of us, even though all our history, our personal and familial and cultural histories may be different, each of us is a, a, a microcosm human being. Right? And so what we see in the world with the seeming cycle of confusion and fear and violence and hatred, there's also a lot of goodness. It doesn't get as much airplay, but you can find it if you look. We're a microcosm of that. And so what we are setting up the conditions in a retreat in our whole life of awareness practice, the Buddha is saying what he's offering us isn't an 
escape from the facts of the world or from connection with people or from relationships. But he's saying that what frees our hearts and minds from suffering is understanding things as they actually are. The the Buddhist path kind of begins and ends with wise understanding or right view. The first step of the Eightfold Noble Path of Practice is right view, but then it's really more like a circle. You know, you go through sila, appropriate non-harming behavior, through uh, meditation, cultivating uh, energy and mindfulness and collectedness of mind, and then it comes back around again to right understanding and right intention. It keeps deepening and spiraling. So it even begins with right view. And what I love about that translation is, in a way, I find it very literal. Viewing, recognizing our experience accurately, as opposed to our ideas and assumptions about what's happening, is actually what frees the heart and mind. The wisdom that arises from that is what frees the heart and mind from the suffering and confusion that's brought about by the habits of reaction. We're reacting to something that we're not even recognizing it accurately, so we react in a way that's inappropriate. So the Buddha's his awakening, when he came to understand and free the heart and mind, he awoke and lived in the same world. So if we're waiting for the bolt of lightning, there was a lot last night, Did it do it? No, here we all still are, right? If we're waiting for the bolt of lightning to take us into the alternate universe of happiness and freedom, give it up. Give it up. There's not an alternate. Maybe there is. I don't know. I have a friend who's going on about black holes and showing me pictures and trying to explain it. Maybe there is an alternate universe if you go through a black hole. I have no clue. But that's not what the Buddha is offering us. We don't have to do that woke up in the same world, but recognizing it accurately, that's what's changed. So when we understand the landmines in our own heart, that understanding, that accurate recognition is the wisdom that allows for the the habits of mind to release from responding with anger, with hatred, with greed, with self-judgment. This is the liberation of heart-mind that the Buddha's teachings offer us. That the suffering that arises, remember I read from the Dalai Lama the other night, that so much of our unhappiness originates within our own minds and hearts in how we react to the events in our life. That's very much to the point. The suffering the Buddha is talking about, that we can explore, that we do explore here on the retreat. Even if it seems small, or you could even say insignificant if you want to put yourself down, but it's not helpful to call your suffering insignificant. Compared to that in the world, the mechanism's the same. So this is what we really can understand, that the, the suffering which arises from this moment in our own mind and heart, how it's perceiving and responding to experience. The suffering arises in this moment, 
the freedom from it, the dissolution of the suffering, the compassion and the wisdom arises in this moment, in this mind and heart. So the suffering is not because of the circumstances or as they are. And awakening from suffering doesn't change all the circumstances externally. It's not going to. But it does affect a complete change in how we understand and how we respond, both internally and externally. Like I said, we can't just decide from now on, I'm not going to act out of anger. To some extent, we can, and that's where the precepts are helpful. We come up against certain strong actions Even then, sometimes the energy of anger or greed can be too strong. But a lot of it will bring us up against a wall and we see what's going on in the heart and mind. Oh, I don't want to do that. That's great. That's great. That's like the precept is letting wisdom come in and say, oh, that's a harmful thing. Don't do it. But the anger might still be arising, right? But it's it's not just external action, but it's also this wisdom of accurate recognition. And that's all it is. Accurate recognition really changes the heart and mind. So that, as Martin Luther King said, in talking about nonviolence, he said, nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of the spirit. We not only refuse to shoot a person, we refuse to hate them. That's really the internal place that all of our practice is bringing us into again and again and again, moment after moment. You guys have to tell me if you can't hear me anymore. Okay. Okay? No? Can you hear it? Yeah. Okay. Moment after moment. Because just thinking about it without the experience of really recognizing things as they are, in my mind, it can be easy to think when these horrible things happen, of course the normal response is anger, fear. Oh, that is the normal response. That's a habitual response. But we can think, though, that's the right and appropriate response. What else could be possible? But then you, you know, you're someone like, Dr. King, or actually, um, I was quite inspired a couple of weeks ago. I was listening to the BBC, and they were interviewing people a a day or two after um, all those people in New Zealand were killed in the mosque in New Zealand. I don't know how they do it. They go and interview people who survived it, you know, like the next day. I don't know how you can do that. But anyway, it was very inspiring because they were talking to a man and it seemed like he was an elderly man who had been, you know, in the mosque with his wife. And his wife, his wife died in the attack, and he didn't. And he, uh, they described, he was in a wheelchair, and she had been his caretaker. And they were talking to him maybe two days after his wife had died. And I, you could hear him talking. He, was, he just sounded amazing. And he said, you know, he said, we are one people. And he didn't mean just the people who were worshiping in the mosque. He meant everyone. I may have just been in New Zealand or it may have been in the world. I don't know. But he wasn't just talking about the people in the mosque. He said, we're one people. 
And he said, perhaps someone who acts like this, like the killer, is hoping that there will be retaliatory violence from Muslims. But he said, as far as he's concerned, that's not going to happen. We are one people. We need to change within ourselves to be able to live together. I thought, okay, that's, how can someone have that depth of clarity and connectedness to be able to respond in that way? It's possible. It is really very inspiring to me. It's possible. And this is, you know, one person, one person, one person. It doesn't end all the hatred, but this is where where we're starting. This is really what the Buddha is offering at us. The same world recognized differently. Starting from our own experience, really with interest, look and see what's going on. It's so elegant. When we recognize accurately all of the responses of confusion or wanting or whatever, they don't make sense anymore. So they just drop away. So let me just give you an example of what I mean. Very simple. (laughs) One I've been using a lot recently, because it's simple, but it's really how it works. About my young nephew, when he was really young, when he was two or three, now he's old, he's five. So just watching how kids learn, you know. And so this is just a simple example with, you know, the simple old toys where they have like a a box, you have wooden blocks in the shape of circle, square, triangle, and then you have a big wooden box with the holes in the shapes, and the kids just learn to put the blocks in, you know. We say it's not rocket science. But first a kid, you know, you, you show them, it looks so easy, so they think they just, you know, he just picks up the block and tries to put it in. But he's not differentiating circle from square from triangle. So trying to put the circle in the triangle, and it doesn't go. Tries again, you know, to put the triangle in the square, it doesn't go. And different kids, based on personality, would respond differently. But I could see the sense of confusion leading to frustration, leading to, you know, really kind of antsiness and uh, if, if, if it was an adult trying to do it, the thoughts could be things like, what's wrong with me, turning the frustration inward, it looks so easy for them, what's the matter with me that I can't do it, or more like there's a secret, the adults aren't telling me, what is it? And you can just see the frustration building, it doesn't work, it doesn't work, you know, until they just want to throw the thing against the wall and go do something else, right? But keep trying and all of a sudden, something clicks, you know, the triangle goes in the triangle. I'm like, ah, and that just seemed like an accident. But, you know, all of a sudden something clicks and they see the shapes and they see how it works and it's just normal. It's just a law of nature. It's not like they suddenly had this brilliant, you know, change. It's just seeing, oh, that's how it works. And all the frustration goes away because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't relate to the actual experience at all. The sense of I'm stupid or they're not letting me know what's going All of that's gone. Okay, yeah, you put the triangle in the triangle. That's just a law of nature, like gravity. And so then you stop trying to put the triangle in the circle because that doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, you get bored and you move on to something else. (laughs) But that's extra. 
But you get a sense of what I mean. That's what we're talking about, right view. That's insight. It's like, oh, it's like that. All my excitement and upsetness and thinking I got to get angry and do that's just because that doesn't relate. This is how it is. This is the right view that the Buddha's offering us. When we recognize ourselves as we are moment to moment, not a big concept, but what's happening right now in this moment, what's actually happening, not what I think is happening or how I think it ought to be or how my breath ought to be or how it ought to feel if I'm aware every moment or just what's happening now. Oh, sitting, reading the toilet cleaner, boredom. That's what's happening just right here, right now. And you know what? In that moment of awareness, just resting in it, it's totally okay. You're thinking, yeah, right. No, it's totally okay in that moment. Oh, this is what it is now. And all the wanting and the comparing and the looking for something else just drops away. And we see that what was making the problem isn't that the experience isn't giving us enough. It's that the heart, the mind, the consciousness in that moment is so kind of um, covered over, distorted by wanting it to be different, by trying to make something happen, by comparing to some feeling we had in the past and not even recognizing that's going on as a kind of overlay of simply just being here in this moment fully present, the things as they are. So this, this, beginning to explore what's really going on is the power of this simple, steady, moment-to-moment awareness, mindfulness. Mingyur Rinpoche said once that if we want to be happy, we need to recognize what causes and conditions lead to well-being, And similarly, if we do not have a clear understanding of the conditions that create suffering, how can we possibly expect to be free from it, to free ourselves from it? And the understanding he's talking about here, again, it's not thinking, oh, what do I need to make me happy? Let's see if my body didn't hurt and if I had a new car and I had a better job and there was peace in the world, then I would be happy. Or if it just at least I could go to bed early, I would be happy. Those are just ideas, right? Just ideas. The understanding he's talking about is the simple, clear and accurate perception, recognition of what's happening now, not being in contention with reality. That's mindfulness. One definition of Vipassana meditation I think this is from Utejaniya. Vipassana meditation is experiencing the mind and body directly from moment to moment with the right understanding. Does that sound like familiar, like from what we were saying today? Experiencing the mind and body directly means just this simple awareness relaxing into experience, just being here with it directly, not through the veil of how we think it ought to be or how it was yesterday or whatever I like or I don't like. Oh, it's just like this now. It's just like this now. Just feeling the sensations, just noticing seeing's happening. It seems so simple, so nothing. But the steadiness of this, and it's the steadiness that's the key, starts to reveal just how life is working, 
the cause and effect of how things are happening. We start to recognize for ourselves, for ourselves. So, if all it takes to really feel some liberation from the landmines in our hearts, to be present in a moment of life fully, without feeling in contention, without feeling self-judgment, without it being such a struggle, without it needing it to be other. If it's so simple that all we have to do is just recognize what's occurring, why is it so hard? Because it's simple and it's really difficult, isn't it? Difficult, not in the sense of you have to try harder, because trying harder... Trying harder generally means a sense of wanting to have a certain thing happen or wanting to have a certain thing stop happening, right? So we try harder. Wanting, wanting, wanting. Get away, get away. I'm trying harder. Aversion, aversion. This is exactly what blocks and obstructs are resting at ease with clear awareness. It's what obstructs accurate recognition. It's what obstructs really awakening. Not that wanting can arise, aversion can. They can arise, they can be recognized. But unrecognized, that's really where we get into all these reactions. Like the, the young kid, you know, throwing the blocks across the room. Really the frustration and the aversion is unrecognized and that's really what's cultivating the response. And that's what keeps us confused, what keeps us from not recognizing what's happening. From the Buddha. This liberation, this nibbana, is visible here and now. To what extent is it visible here and now? To the extent that greed, that hatred or fear, that confusion are not present in the heart-mind, are not clouding, are not obstructing our clear presence in the heart-mind. But when we don't recognize, and you can be trying really sincerely, with full effort, really, and you're mindful of what's happening, you're walking, let's take walking, and as I think... uh, Probably Mark said this morning, you could be walking and feeling every single sensation, 60 sensations in the lifting of your foot. That can be done with wisdom. That can be done with incredible wanting and striving and pushing. And you really, you you feel mindful because you're present. But what's being missed, the elephant in the room, is how much wanting and forcing is going into that. You know, and at the end of a pass of walking, you feel like your whole body's just going to break in two or something. Sometimes I, I'll notice my tongue is like glued to the roof of my mouth. You know, I feel the sensations, you know. I go, I'm present, what's the problem? It's like, oh, there's a little wanting going on here. Not quite noticed. The attitude in the mind. As the Buddha said, when, when the, the heart mind, the citta is filled with or obsessed with wanting, greed, or aversion. 
or ill will, and we don't recognize it. We can't see our own good or the good of another or the good of both. We can't recognize accurately. And so it's not, you know, and then we think, okay, I'm going to really get rid of greed and we start hating greed. Yeah, yeah, that's not really the point. It's more like looking and seeing how does it work. Greed is just another aspect of nature. It's a habit that's been cultivated in the heart's minds. It makes sense. This is pleasant. Let me get more of it because that's the avenue to happiness. That's what we've learned. It's just cause and effect. This is unpleasant. Let me get away from it because it's miserable to be with the unpleasant. Who wants to be with pain? If you can get away, of course you should. But that aversion part's extra. But we don't, we don't recognize that. And so it kind of it distorts. We don't quite know what's going on. There's a funny, just very simple how that works. From, I think it was from Andrea Levine. He said just how you can't trust your mind. You can't trust our perceptions when they're distorted by greed or aversion. And we can, if you can recognize it, that helps. So she gave a simple example. If you're eating a big piece of chocolate cake, okay, and there's another big piece, and you think, oh, your mind goes, come on, have another piece. It'll be really pleasant. You'll really like it. It's good for you. Have another piece. You deserve it. So you eat the other piece, at which point you know, you're not feeling so well, and your mind goes, I wouldn't have done that if I were you. <laughs> you know, so we think it's the same mind, but that's what, oh, craving is going to make me so happy. <laughs> so you just can't trust it. We need to start recognizing that it's these mental qualities that are just habits, forces of nature. We're just nature like everything else, that when they're present and unrecognized, it keeps us spinning in confusion. It's really what can start from just a little, oh, I don't like that sound, all the way up to some really caught in rage or fear or terror. It can, it can go really quickly. So, and the greed and the aversion, this not wanting to be with what's happening, wanting it to be better, the way that the kind of biggest or strongest or most familiar um, cloud of delusion, the way they show up, is what Alexis mentioned, I guess it was this morning, of that sense of it's all about me. I don't know if you can relate to this at all, but just uh, the sense of taking whatever's occurring personally. You know, and that can be just noticing this. Don't, don't take it personally that you take it personally. You know, it's like, oh no, I'm doing it again. It's another habit of mind. The thing with steady awareness, remember, awareness isn't picking and choosing. This is okay to pay attention to. Oh, this is ugly. I don't want to see how much I'm identifying with stuff. So let's, let's pretend it's not happening. All beings, may all beings be happy. And say, no, no, no. Just see what's really happening. Awareness is just interested in watching how it all works. That's where the wisdom and the freedom come in. So watching how this sense of taking it personally arises and what the effect of it is, just in small things. So what do I mean by that? Just the sense of, as we're going through the day, there's all these things happening, right? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, all the different physical sensations, and how many thoughts and moods and emotions, images have come in this day. Millions, right? I mean, every moment something's arising. 
you, I'm, I'm really pretty sure, I say I'm 100% sure, your mind didn't take every single one of those personally because it would really be unbearable, unbearable. Because when we take it personally, it either is me or it's mine or it's happening to me, it's doing it to me. The whole world comes about me, about me, and it really just shrinks everything. So for example, there's a sound that's unpleasant and it's occurring over and over. That's just what's happening. But when there's that sense of that sound is affecting my practice, that sound is upsetting me. And then immediately the mind either goes into I should be able to just be equanimous with it and get negative to oneself or it goes into this is a meditation center. They should be a little more in control. Their heat shouldn't make noise. The lightning, you know, shouldn't come. The rain, they should have fixed the gutters ages ago so that we wouldn't have to sit in the meditation hall and listen to all this noise with the gutters. What's the matter with them? And it can go on and on. If you were here in a three-month retreat, sometimes we used to have these wars over the windows. You know, how much are they open? How much are they closed? And the place, it's just endless. But that's like all about me. I shouldn't be hot. I shouldn't be cold. They should make it better. It just complicates everything, everything. And we really believe that story. It shouldn't be, how can they fix it? It's their fault. It's my fault. How can I get more? And we don't even recognize that. We get completely entranced by the reactions of mind. You know, at some point we're not even noticing it's an unpleasant sound anymore. We're way down the road. Way, I mean, it might be literally way down the road. But you're way down the road of how can it be fixed? What's the matter with them? I should have gone to this other place. Whatever it is. Sort of, and seeing how it shrinks our world. This is from um, the Dalai Lama. Because it, we're paying attention The steady awareness is really being with our own experience all day. And so we really are giving a huge amount of attention to seemingly me, right? So of course we're going to be noticing how much the sense of me taking it personally comes up. But keep watching. Keep watching. Don't stop watching, the Dalai Lama. The paradox is that although the drive behind excessive self-focus is to seek greater happiness for yourself, it can end up doing exactly the opposite. When you focus too much on yourself, you become disconnected and alienated from others. In the end, you also become alienated from yourself. With too much self-focus, your vision can become narrow. And with this, even a small problem appears out of proportion and unbalanced. Maybe you haven't been here long enough to experience that. We have a phenomenon. There is a phenomenon. We don't have it. We all experience it. That occurs on retreat. It occurs off retreat too, but talking on retreat. That we call, we call it yogi mind. Well, another day two, day three, it starts to happen. It's normal where this sense of um, taking it personally, something pleasant or unpleasant, a little thing gets really exaggerated, really exaggerated. It becomes so important when you find yourself needing to write a note to the cooks with this incredible vehemence 
And you know, you're thinking, this, if I write this note, I got a note once when I was a cook here long ago. We got a note that said, if I never see another wheat berry for the rest of my life, that would be good for the good of all beings. And it's always, always signed meta. These are always signed meta. <laughs> and I, I believe the, the people who write them really think, I am writing this for the good of all beings. If you guys ever serve this again, I won't, <laughs> won't be responsible for the other yogis' mind states. <laughs> Actually, a teacher said that to us once. If this is served again, I won't be responsible for the mind states of the yogis out there. Or you burst into the office, you know, don't you have this particular kind of cold care in the, in the uh, yogi needs closet? Don't you know? This is a, with this incredible vehemence. That's, we call that yogi mind. The world is shrinking and it becomes all about me. Whatever's occurring is all about me. Joseph Goldstein tells a a great story, simple but great, how this works. He was on a retreat in line for the meal like today and maybe the second person in line, big pots of soup or whatever, and they still had the cover on. So the person ahead of him took the cover off and dropped it. And can imagine everyone make a heck of a racket, right? All over it. Everyone's looking. And he says his first thought was, it wasn't me. <laughs> right? You want to stand aside and it wasn't me. <laughs> That's what our minds do. When it's this sense of it shrinking our world. That's what happens when um, this sense of taking things personally. And that, again serves into strengthening the habits of fear and aversion and greed because we think that's what makes us happy. And we'll talk more about how these work in the next days. You don't have to try and get rid of any of this stuff. This is the beauty of this simplicity of simple moment-to-moment receptive awareness. Because if you heard Alexis this morning, we're not trying to make anything happen. We're not trying to get rid of anything that's happening. We're just trying to see, to be with this moment's experience as it is. Let life reveal itself. Let life tell its own story in the light of this simple, steady, moment-to-moment presence. It's so much less we have to do than trying to fix How can we fix? We don't even know what's happening in the first place. And then we're trying to fix it to match some cockamamie idea we come up with. Basically, bottom line, maybe I'm wrong for you, you look and see, but bottom line is generally going to be if you're trying to fix it, you want it to be more pleasant. Just look and see. Don't believe me, but look and see. When you think of of being free from suffering, does that include any more unpleasant experience? No, right? We were just talking today, there were, there were Buddha suttas where he starts to give a talk, the Buddha, and then he turns to Ananda or Sariputta and says, my back is hurting, you finish the talk, I'm going to go lie down. Did you ever think of the Buddha having a backache? He had a body, right? It keeps on doing its thing. It doesn't stop, you know. That's not the suffering the Buddha that can free us from. The body's still going to grow and decay and get sick. Stuff's still going to happen in the world. And so if we're trying to get in here and fix our experience, if we're using awareness practice to try and make our experience better and 
in my experience, that keeps slipping in more and more and more subtly. Don't blame yourself. I'm just being with what is. Is there tension? Is there struggle? Check it. I'm being with what is, but it would be a little better if it was like that. (laughs) Once I was practicing in, uh, I think I was in Burma, I'd been there quite a long time and I was doing walking meditation, just being present, aware, and it, it was fine. Awareness was pretty natural, easy, it, nothing super... But I just noticed this little niggling sense of... I started this little sense of struggle or something. So sometimes it's helpful to just take a moment and actually see what's the thought, what's the expectation there in the back of the mind. Sometimes it's helpful to kind of bring it up into the light of day because when you see it, you go, oh. So this one was, it's like, it could be better. That was the thought. Just a little bit striving, pushing, it, it could be better. What could be better? I don't know. I didn't know. It. Something could be better. Walking up and down could be better. <laughs> really. But without recognizing that, uh, it's wanting, uh, it's wanting, uh, uh, it's like this now. Because what we're developing, what we're cultivating, what we're coming to trust this refuge is this trusting, this simplicity and totality of receptive awareness. It's like this. Whatever's occurring, the seeing, hearing, smelling, thoughts, thinking, whatever's happening, that's the catalyst to re-recognize awareness. Any moment, whatever's occurring, knowing is happening, here's the awareness again. That starts to become more interesting, more enlivening than deriving our sense of happiness, unhappiness, and personal meaning from whatever particular experience is arising. So notice how much you, how much we might think, oh, it's going well now because my body's not hurting and I'm really enjoying this food or whatever it is. Oh, it's really going badly now. There's this sound and there's aversion and there's a tingling and the people are moving. But there's actually really steady awareness. That's fine. So the steady awareness, this mindful awareness, the simplicity and honesty of that, just relaxing into whatever's presenting itself due to causes and conditions. We never know what's going to arise and experience in the next moment, do we? You can plan it all out, you know, but we sit down, you never know what's going to arise in the next moment in a sitting, do you? I love it when I've been on retreat long enough that I sit down and it's like, okay, what happens next? Well, our whole life is like that. It's not just a sitting, Ever you stand up and you think, I'm going to go walk, and the next thing you know, you're sitting in the dining room drinking tea. Well, how did this happen? I thought I was going to walk. (laughs) The awareness kind of took a holiday and didn't notice all the different motivations coming and going. So all we want to do is just relax into this moment with this simplicity and honesty of awareness and let life tell its own story. It's so much easier than what we can imagine. But because, you know, the awareness, the sense of awareness, this rest, it's nothing fancy going on. And it's so almost, it's ephemeral, you know, but like when Alexis said, are you aware of seeing or not? And you could know you were aware of seeing after he said it. That difference between seeing and not being aware of it and being aware of it, it's 
palpable but, but really subtle, right? It's like almost nothing, but it's something. How to trust that enough that it can actually be the condition that leads to the wisdom that transforms our understanding of ourselves and of life, that really transforms the habits of our heart and mind from confusion and self-interest and fear and greed to wisdom and compassion, to allow us like that, that man in the wheelchair in New Zealand, whatever his natural response, to actually be able to, in a moment, have a sense of more of the, the connectedness of all of us and not just my own particular story. The effect of living in this fullness of awareness, just being with what's happening in the heart-mind in this moment, is really the condition that leads to liberating wisdom. So I just want to share uh, an experience. Well, a, fr- a friend I was visiting a couple of years ago, uh, she's an elderly woman in her 90s, and a very long-term deeply serious practitioner with a great deal of wisdom. And she had lived at, up at, she was in her 90s, and so her life had been extremely rich and varied and full, all kinds of experiences. But now the body was frail. The mind was still clear, but the body was frail and living in assisted living. And so uh, the life was extremely confined, right? I mean, maybe she could go out of the facility once in a while if her daughter took her and then staying mostly in the apartment. And she said, we were just visiting, she's, she's been really deep Dharma practitioner for years. And she said, you know, this is the most interesting time of my life. I said, really? How so? She said, well, it's just like when I'm walking across the room to go to put the tea kettle on. That's everything. It's like she just, I'm just, she didn't say it this way, but it's what she meant. She's so present. Walking across the room, that's all of life right here. You know, there's nothing else that's so alive. And when I'm pouring water into the tea kettle, it's just so interesting, you know. It's just all of life right here. And this wasn't like an intellectual thing. This was a deep message from, from her heart. And I can see it's really all of life in that moment, so present in that moment. It's not about the activity that's making her feel interested and alive. It's the quality of the, the pure heart and mind that isn't lost in stories of me that in that moment isn't uh, distorted by wanting things different or thinking it could be better. It's just total wakefulness. And this just quality of Purity, you could say, in the heart-mind, just not clouded by these confusions. And it doesn't take some incredible thing in life to be alive and interesting. It's the quality of present moment awareness. Steady, steady, steady. This is really what our practice is. And just let the knowing, let the wisdom arise by itself. It will do. It's a fact of nature, cause and effect. Just like if you plant a seed and water it and there's sunshine, the right conditions, it grows. Nothing we do. Steady awareness without picking and choosing. And that's what's so important. Letting 
all these difficult and beautiful things come and go and being really present with just watching it with interest. Reality reveals itself. And the natural effect of wisdom is that wisdom cultivates, inclines towards the beautiful, the wholesome qualities of heart and mind. The suffering qualities don't make any sense. They become irrelevant. And so they're abandoned in that moment. So I just want to end with a couple of quotations. One from two different Burmese teachers, very different from each other. One's from Sayadaw Utejaniya. As mindfulness, awareness, is remembered more and more frequently, gradually it develops its own momentum. We come to appreciate moments of awareness more than, our, more than we appreciate our entrancements and reactions with whatever the mind is noticing. So we appreciate the awareness more than the reactions. This is from Sayada Upandita. When mindfulness, when awareness is persistently and repeatedly activated, which is just simply remembering, that's it, repeatedly activated, wisdom arises. There will be insight into the true nature of body and mind. This is not an act of personal will. You don't have to make it happen. It's just a natural law. So relax, settle back. What's happening now? That's our, that's our job. But this moment, and then the next moment, then we forget for five and a half hours. And, oh, what's happening now, right now? That's all. Just not being in contention with this moment. So... Thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.